Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we discuss what life is really like for those unfortunate enough to live under communist or socialist governments. Recording from the suburbs of Wichita, Kansas, this is Eric Seligman, your host, with co-host Manuel Castaneda dialing in from Oregon. Today we're going to take a look at one of the Otter episodes in the prehistory of communism, the short-lived socialist commune where Louisa May Alcott spent time as a child in the 1840s. Yes, I'm talking about that Louisa May Alcott, the author of the children's classic Little Woman. One lesser-known historical tidbit is that her father, the Reverend Bronson Alcott, fancied himself a philosopher and decided that he needed to create a new life for his family and separate himself from the corrupt modern economy whose, as he described it, root is selfishness, whose trunk is property, whose fruit is gold. He managed to convince a small group of followers to join him, and one, Charles Lane, had enough money to buy a farm in Massachusetts where they could put Alcott's ideas into practice. They called this commune Fruitlands in honor of the abundance of fruit they expected to produce. A collection of memoirs and writings about Fruitlands were eventually published many years later by someone named Clara Endicott Sears and is available to read at Project Gutenberg. The Reverend Alcott was an elegant writer, and he became friendly with numerous literary figures of the time, such as Emerson, Thoreau, and Hawthorne. Here's how he described his objectives and philosophy. First, to obtain the free use of a spot of land adequate by our own labor to support. Secondly, to live independently of foreign aids by being sufficiently elevated to procure all articles for subsistence in the productions of the spot under a regimen of healthful labor and recreation, with benignity towards all creatures, human and inferior, with beauty and refinement in all economics, and the purest charity throughout our demeanor. We are not without hope that providence will use us progressively for beneficial effects in the great work of human regeneration and the restoration of the highest life on earth. We do not recognize the purchase of land, but its redemption from the debasing state of proprium or property to divine uses, truly understand when those whom the world esteems as owners are found yielding their individual rights to the supreme owner. Trade we hope entirely to avoid at an early day. As a nursery for many evil propensities, it's almost universally felt to be a most undesirable course. Such needful articles as we cannot yet raise by our own hand labor from the soil, thus redeemed from human ownership, we shall endeavor to obtain by friendly exchanges, and as nearly as possible, without the intervention of money. Of all the traffic in which civilized society is involved, that of human labor is perhaps the most detrimental. From the state of serfdom to the receipt of wages may be a step in human progress, but it is certainly full time for taking a new step out of the hiring system. As you can see, some of his ideas had a lot in common with those that Marx would write a few years later, idealizing labor and claiming that paid employment amounts to slavery. Alcott also added in a few more quirky ideas and philosophies, such as strict vegetarianism, which didn't make his project any easier. Nevertheless, his follower and chief financier, Charles Lane, was full of optimism, worrying that their great improvement to the human condition might attract those who wanted to use their ideas for the villainous goal of making money. Perhaps the external revelations of success were to always be kept secret, for every improvement discovered is only turned into a money-making account and to the further degradation of man, as we see in the march of science to this very moment. If we knew how to double the crops of the earth, it is scarcely to be hoped that any good would come by revealing the mode. On the contrary, the bounties of God are already made the means by which man debases himself more and more. We will therefore say little concerning the sources of external wealth until man is himself secure to the end which rightly uses these means. Of course, once Alcott started working to actually put together the community, there were a number of details that seemed a bit challenging. Fortunately, Lane had enough money to buy the farm and was sufficiently committed to the cause to purchase and donate it to the group. 
But when they started recruiting potential residents, it got harder. As one observer wrote, the matter of getting the right kind of persons to join the community required a keen insight into human nature, and on this point, Mr. Alcott was not very strong. His own sincerity and depth of purpose were so great that he looked for these same attributes in everyone who approached him, and often failed to detect the superficial qualities that lurked underneath the surface enthusiasm of some of his followers. One of the Fruitlanders took it into his head that clothes were an impediment to spiritual growth, and that the light of day was equally pernicious. He accordingly secluded himself in his room in a state of nature during the day, and only went out at night for exercise with a single white cotton garment reaching from his neck to his knees. When it got time to actually do the hard work of farming the fields, things didn't go quite as smoothly as Alcott had hoped. Concern quickly grew about Alcott's dogmatism and refusal to compromise. As some of the residents and observers wrote, He thinks Mr. Alcott is arbitrary or despotic, as some others do, but I shall endeavor, and I think not in vain, to urge him to the noblest conduct of which our position is capable. He must not complain nor walk off, but cheerfully amend whatever is amiss. Alcott was very strict, rather despotic, in his rule of the community, and some of the members have told me they were nearly starved to death there. Nay, absolutely would have perished with hunger if they had not furtively gone among the surrounding farmers and begged for food. Interestingly, the journal kept by his daughter Anna, and later incorporated into Sears's collection, had the second half completely torn out, apparently intentionally destroyed. One has to wonder whether, in the later stages of the experiment, she actually had similar complaints, and her father didn't want to risk those being shared with the world. This theory is supported by the fact that the surviving portion of the diary contains occasional notes in the reverend's handwriting. The biggest problem at Fruitlands was simply the fact that farming is hard work, and doing it right involves leveraging the collective learnings of many thousands of years of human experience, not rebooting the core concepts based on idealized philosophies. During the short life of the commune, Alcott and Lane were constantly lecturing, entertaining visitors, and doing other work that did not contribute to the farm. The small group of able farmers didn't seem to be progressing fast enough in their fieldwork, but their leader's philosophy prevented the obvious solutions. Hired laborers and beasts of burden were against the principles of the community, but in order to make headway against the advancing season, they seemed to be a necessity. This concession, however, troubled the philosophers. It was decided to carry out the original plan and rely wholly on the spade and send the plow, even at a cost of valuable time. The results were rather disastrous. Charles Lane's hands became sore and painful, and Lane back seriously interfered with progress. Sobered by this new experience, the philosophers met in conclave, and as a result, Joseph Palmer, who always came to the rescue in trying situations, went to town and brought back his plow and yoke of oxen, as he called it. It really was an ox and a cow which he had trained to work together. Besides the outdoor work, much writing was done indoors. Charles Lane and Bauer wrote prolifically to different papers. The Herald of Freedom, the Vermont Telegraph, and the New York Tribune of that summer are full of their writings. Unfortunately, farm operations were not started until well into June, and the only cop raised that was of value as dependence was barley. But the philosophers did not flinch at the thought of an exclusively barley diet. Now and then they gave a thought as to what they should do for shoes when those they had now were gone, for depriving the cow of her skin was a crime not to be tolerated. The barley crop was injured in harvesting, and before long, actual want was staring them in the face. As the first autumn approached and the crops were clearly failing, Alcott and Lane took an ill-advised trip to the city to try to gain more followers. This left his commune on the brink of starvation, his wife scrambling to save them at the last minute. It was all very pleasant, this wandering off and showing their linen tunics to the world and holding conversations to enlighten people in regard to the future wonders of the new Eden, 
But the day they left Fruitlands, Joseph Palmer was off attending to his cattle, and the crop of barley had been cut and was waiting to be harvested. Poor Mrs. Alcott looked at it with anxious eyes. The granary was almost empty, and this barley meant food. She could forget herself, but she could not ignore the needs of her children. Christopher Green and Larned and Bower were also away. The barley lay there with no one to bring it into a safe shelter. The next day she looked at it again with a sinking heart. As the afternoon waned, black clouds covered the sky and flashes of lightning ran seams through them with terrifying rapidity. Then Mrs. Alcott made a quick decision. Gathering all the baskets she could find, she carried them to the barley field with the help of the children, and in hot haste they gathered the barley into the baskets and dragged them to the granary and ran back as fast as they could for more. Thus they worked with all their strength, when the storm broke, they had saved enough to last them for at least a few weeks. Luckily, this commune was not a country. People could freely enter and leave it. And as you'd expect, the result of this pathetic attempt at farming was a stampede towards the exits, as Lane complained. All the persons who have joined us during the summer have for some cause or other quitted, they say in consequence of Mr. Alcott's despotic manner, which he interprets as their not being equal to the spirit's demands. Mrs. Alcott has no spontaneous inclination towards a larger family than her own natural one. Of spiritual ties she knows nothing, though to keep all together she does and would go through a good deal of exterior and interior toil. I hoped I had done with pecuniary affairs, but it seems I am not to be let off. The crops, I believe, will not discharge all the obligations they are expected to liquidate. In the midst of all these events, and of William's illness, who is in bed eight or ten days with a sort of bilious fever, I am not without the conciliatory hope that some measure of spirit utilitarity is bound up with our obscure doings. In the end, the commune did not survive its first winter. Soon everyone was gone, and the reverend entered a deep depression. Eventually, though, he realized he needed to provide for his family and snapped out of it to return to a somewhat normal life. Ultimately, the best thing to come out of this commune was his daughter Louisa May Alcott's sarcastic short memoir, Transcendental Wild Oats. Hiding behind animal pseudonyms, she wrote a biting critique of many of the events at Fruitlands. Here are some of my favorite bits of that piece. What part of the work do you incline to yourself? asked Sister Hope, with a humorous glimmer in her keen eyes. I shall wait till it is made clear to me. Being, in preference to doing, is the great aim, and this comes to us rather by a resigned willingness than a willful activity, which is a check to all divine growth, responded Brother Timon. I thought so, and Mrs. Lamb sighed audibly, for during the year he had spent in her family, Brother Timon had so faithfully carried out his idea of being, not doing, that she had found his divine growth both an expensive and unsatisfactory process. Such farming probably was never seen before since Adam delved. The band of brothers began by spading garden and field, but a few days of it lessened their ardor amazingly. Blistered hands and aching backs suggested the expediency of permitting the use of cattle till the workers were better fitted for noble toil by a summer of the new life. Brother Moses brought a yoke of oxen from his farm, at least the philosophers thought so till it was discovered that one of the animals was a cow. Great was Dictator Lyon's indignation at this lapse of virtue. But time pressed, the work must be done, so the meek cow was permitted to wear the yoke. The garden was planted with a generous supply of useful roots and herbs, but as manure was not allowed to profane the virgin soil, few of these vegetable treasures ever came up. Transcendental wild oats were sown broadcast that year, and the fame thereof has not yet ceased in the land. For, futile as the crop seemed to outsiders, it bore an invisible harvest worth much to those who planted in earnest. So, okay. Yeah. So, so what do you think of the story, Manuel? Well, it was, for one thing, very intriguing because most of us lame people that 
are not deep into history about these things. We believe that the start of communism was uh, Marx or Lenin in Russia, you know. And here we have a story where uh, it kind of shocked me because it looks like we play a big role here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny how these utopian socialist movements are really a fundamental part of American history, right? So remember a number of episodes back, we discussed the the pilgrims at the Mayflower and how they tried to form a socialism that totally failed. And now we're seeing another example from the 1800s. And of course, there were a lot of these little socialist movements throughout American history. I think the one we're talking about this week was one of the stupider ones, but it's, you know, entertaining because it involves a famous author or, you know, an author who later became famous for non-socialist reasons. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's just that uh, it's incredible to see how uh, silly those ideas are to someone who lives in the real world. These people might have really, really strange ideas to believe that that somehow uh, you're going to have a better outcome from something that has been that, that doesn't inspire the humans uh, a, a human to to better themselves. You know, it look it seems to me like in some way they are just going backwards, but they think they're going forwards with their ideology. I mean, the whole ideology just blinds these people. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, I think the idea of ideology blinding people is really important, you know, aside from the fact that they were so blind they couldn't tell an ox from a cow. Um, but more seriously, just the fact that they were so confident in their methods because of their great philosophy without any attention to the real world. Like, it was amazing how, you know, Charles Lane was worried that they would be so successful that their problem would be people trying to profit off of them. <laughs> yes. And, I mean, if you have something and you try it, we learn from that. And if it doesn't work, we also learn from that, that it doesn't work and we try something new. But for some reason, it just seems like people keep trying something, it doesn't work, and they go back at it again, thinking that this time is going to work. And and we forget that, you know, the story is very clear that a lot of our successes are not because we are suddenly brilliant people from, you know, one generation to the next, but... Most of what we do and and we uh, we do most of what we have or or systems we use are improvements from the past. Yeah, from many yeah. generations and generations back. Yeah, yeah, and it's a real problem when someone says, "Okay, we should throw away our entire system because it's unjust and start something better from scratch." And, you know, how do they know that their idea is better? And will it be too late once they've done that? Correct, yeah. I I really, 
I I really like the uh, the part where you know the the real human spirit comes alive in the story when when one of the the uh, um, persons in the story sees that the their food is going to go to waste by the rain, you know they quickly realize, hey, uh, this is not right. I got to do something about it, and that's usually what saves uh, humankind and separates us from the rest of the 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 animal kingdom. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, when Mrs. Alcott heroically stepped in and did the harvesting because everybody else in their great socialist commune was doing other stuff that was totally unnecessary at the time. I mean, it's kind of crazy, and it's just really a good story about how in capitalism we sort of allocate resources using this horrible, evil thing called money, and that motivates people to do things that desperately need to be done. Right. Well, in this system where supposedly everybody works for the common good, there's really nothing motivating anybody in particular to do things that are really needed, and and that almost dooms them. Uh, do you think any of these stories are taught, or maybe mandatory books in our school system now, public school systems and universities? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that so much of our education establishment is taken over by true believers in socialism. You know, if the Reverend Alcott was around today, I think there'd be a lot of public school teachers and university professors joining his commune. Um, but we need to do a better job of teaching people about all these experiments in socialism and why they failed. Right, because one thing we constantly hear is nobody's really tried socialism, but we can see that's totally wrong. People have tried it over and over and get the same results every time. Yeah, and when you give them examples that it has been tried many times, oh, that that was, they didn't try it the right way. <laughs> it's if you just do it this other way or my way, it'll work. Yeah. Oh, it's. It's really intriguing to see the history, and it kind of made me want to visit uh, Massachusetts. I have not been in Massachusetts before, but some crazy, some great ideas come have come out of there, but some crazy ideas have also uh, took root in that area. Yeah, I think the Fruitlands Museum is still around, um, so you could probably go check out the place, and uh, I'm sure it would be interesting. Yeah, the Fruitlands Museum, uh, and it's it's just uh, it 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 provides an opportunity for us when you visit those places for us to to say, hey, this is not some crazy story because we read about it right now and and we think this is so far off that nobody would try it today. But yet, uh, I think we see some people heading in that direction now, today. Yeah, well, you know, too much of our current uh, national government is dominated by people who think socialism's an awesome idea and we just need to implement it right this time, and it's going to be perfect. Yes, I would 
I would uh, recommend that anyone who um, hears this this socialistic ideas that they take a moment and ask uh, why where else have they been tried and where are they working properly we have to compare things and see not just run with an idea because somebody because it sounded good or somebody told you it was a good idea but um, ask hard questions and say where is it working right now so I can go uh, see it or I can read more about it and then once you do that you'll find out that oh boy you know this this thing only worked for a little while until they ran out of money from whoever pitched in the money like the farmer that pitched in the money and a lot of the labor to keep him alive and then pretty soon when that's gone everything falls apart yeah, yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind related to that is just because one system has problems doesn't mean another one is the solution, right? So so people say, you know, oh, well, here's this injustice in this place under capitalism. Therefore, we need to throw out capitalism and replace it with socialism. But, you know, the question is, what's the overall result going to be? Right. And uh, I think capitalism yeah. is the worst system ever invented other than everything else. <laughs> yes. If we if we could personally, if I could change cap- capitalism to be better, I would or any of the other systems, because I think it has a lot of flaws, but the other ones have worse flaws, like you say. So we're we we we're sticking with the one with the least amount of flaws. Yeah. Well, it was a great story, uh, Eric, and I, I hope you keep finding these great stories to share with us because uh, and the people who are listening because this is uh, very important that we don't just keep making people go through this uh, difficult, unnecessary experiences, if if you already touched that burner and you got burned, you don't have to keep touching it again to find out that it's not going to be a pleasant feeling. Now, of course, we're not claiming that this particular experience is in itself a definitive refutation of the concept of communism. Alcott's many quirks, such as the strict vegetarianism and refusal to use animal labor, would probably have doomed even a group of economically literate farmers who had attempted to follow him. But are these experiences really that different from those who, a century after, would attempt new and untried farming and economic methods on a national scale and starve millions of their citizens with similar levels of incompetence? It definitely is something to think about. And this has been your story of communism for today.